Hey guys, for this episode, I sat down with my amazing friend, Nicole Hartman. She is an adoptive mom. She's fostered 19 kids and started her own nonprofit. Listen in to hear her unique approach to loving on birth parents as a foster mom. It's really amazing. I can't wait for you guys to hear. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. I want to just start by letting everybody know kind of where you're from, what your background is, you know, how did you meet your husband? How did you start in the world of adoption? So, um, well, I am originally from the Midwest, from Michigan, and pretty much have lived all over the United States. So I've lived in the Pacific Northwest. I lived on the East Coast. I've lived in Florida, uh, Michigan, I've, and I, we have landed in Georgia. So that's where we've been for the last um, 13 years. So this is home now for us. Um, I met my husband when I was in Florida. So we um, met in our mid thirties, um, got married 18 months later. At that point, it was like, you meet someone at that age, you just, you either know or you don't know, you know? Yep, you're in, you're in or out, you know? And so um, we got married and then we moved to Michigan from, um, from Florida. I mean, not to Michigan, we moved to Georgia and then okay. um, we've been here ever since. So this is where we've been. And then we, um, worked hard at trying to build our family and we, um, had a lot of struggles with infertility and we have, mm -hmm. um, three precious little, um, babies in heaven now. Um, we had some losses. Mm -hmm. And so through that, um, our pain and um, what we had gone through, we started a nonprofit called All Embrace. And um, mm -hmm. that nonprofit helps families who have lost babies from miscarriage, stillbirth, or infant death. With that loss and so forth, we um, still were praying and we really felt that we still wanted to have, a, have children and build our family. And so we um, chose to build our family through adoption at that, after that. And so we um, adopted our daughter through an infant adoption and we adopted her at birth. And that was after three failed adoptions happened before um, we adopted Olivia. That was a very long drawn out process on its own over two years. For people and who don't know, can you explain what a failed adoption means? It means pretty much that you were matched up with a birth mother. And so a birth mom that was ready to have a baby and something fell through, whether the birth mom chose to parent instead of chose adoption at that point, whether um, things like, um, you know, some paperwork fell through or maybe another family member stepped up um, and wanted to adopt that, that child. Um, we also had um, a orphan from the Ukraine that we were gonna adopt and then that fell through as well because of some paperwork with the Ukraine. So wow. that, all of that is just more, you know, heartache and loss, but also building to what, what God really had planned for us. And that was for Olivia to be in our home. So, um, sure. which is great. And she's eight years old now. So that's 
pretty amazing that she's already eight. It went by so quick. Um, and then probably when she was about two, um, Peter and I just really didn't feel like our family was complete, but we really felt like um, we were just being called to give back in a different way. And we, God gave us such big gifts and gave us this beautiful big home and, and resources. And so we um, felt like we needed to do something bigger than, than adoption. And so we decided to foster at that point and um, worked very quickly. We said, yeah, we want to foster on a Sunday. Monday, we were in an orientation and the following weekend we were in training. Wow. It was very, very quick. And then it slowed down because home study and so forth takes a while. So it was about six months later um, before we got our first placement. And our first placement was uh, three boys. Um, They were six, eight, and um, 10. And you got to meet two of the boys that we had in the Moments program. So So how old was Olivia when when you decided to foster? She was two. She was two. Okay. She was two. Okay. Okay. And, um, what was the adoption process like, like from you, you did private adoption, right? So not through department. Right. We did do her, her, Olivia's adoption was a private adoption. And, um, we had looked through going through agencies and so forth. And just actually because of embrace, I'll embrace, um, a family found us through all embrace. Okay. So we ended up doing a domestic private infant adoption is what we did with Olivia. So, okay. So then and we have an adoption with her birth parents. Oh, okay. So you still have contact and how does it, how do you work out? Is it just between you and the birth parents or is it part of the adoption agency? Like how do you work out the terms of an open adoption? Um, some agencies you work out a, a agreement before an adoption finalizes. And so that would be like, you know, the birth parents and the adoptive parents come up with an agreement and then everyone signs it. Um, but a lot of open adoptions are just an open adoption agreement, which there's nothing written, but it's just kind of like a, you know, um, I don't know, I guess you say courtesy type of thing. We have that with Olivia's sure. birth parents and um, it's wonderful. It's, we, um, it just worked out beautifully. They're great people. We love them to death. They're part of our family. Um, and that when Olivia wants to see them or they want to see Olivia, we figure out a way to make it happen. Um, that's probably once a year, um, but you know, that's always open. And then we share pictures and if she's doing something crazy, like she made a great video this last week on selling Girl Scout cookies. And so I also forwarded it to them too, because it's adorable. So, um, so those kind of things are what we do just to have that communication. And sometimes we go months without hearing from them or they, them hearing from us, but you know, they're now it's, she's eight years old. So there's a big difference, you know, big time spirit, you know, span, there definitely was more contact with her birth parents when she was an infant. Um, but it's always been very healthy and it's so good for Olivia um, being the adoptee to have that open communication and always have that relationship with her birth parents. And, and it's also good for us because to, um, I th- and I think this is one of the reasons why I think open adoption is so important is that um, it lets the child know that no matter what, 
me as their adoptive mom and dad, we love her birth parents. And so whenever she has questions or concerns or wants to know something, she's going to come to us sure. and not try to figure it out behind our back or think she's going to hurt us or she doesn't want you know us to be upset. And so because it's just so, it's just open and it's just what we talk about and a picture of her birth mom and dad hanging in her bedroom. Sure. And so we just made it a very natural thing instead of this taboo kind of hidden thing that maybe our parents' generation did with adoption. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, I, and I've heard of so many kids going off to, to find their birth parents and being horribly disappointed by what they find. So this is kind of alleviated for her. Mm -hmm, exactly. And it's not, they have live a totally different life than we live. And that's wonderful too, you know? Um, and, and it's great, but I think it's just really good. Um, it's just great for the kid. And it's also, it's, it's, it's just a good thing for all of us. You know, there's never going to be, you're going to get that knock on the door. I want my kid back, you know, which some adoptive families have that fear, you know, but at the same time, they know that she's happy and healthy and it gives them comfort and peace. And, and she gets to know a little bit about herself, you know, her history and where she comes from and her origin. Yeah. It feels so much more like a community feel of we're going to all wrap around, you know, birth parents, kids, there's no judgment. It, it is what it is. And we've stepped up and we love Olivia and they love Olivia. And this is the situation that we're in um, without, you know, some of the negative talk or a lot of the confusion that can happen uh, in situations that are closed adoptions. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, I've worked with a lot of teenagers and um, some of them that were adopted and it was closed adoptions or adoptions where they weren't allowed to have the information until they were 18. And just to see them as teenagers really struggle with that and, and that fight. Um, teenagers are already tough, you know, and, but mm -hmm. to see them fight with their, their adoptive parent, you know, their parents on that and just really struggle to figure out who they are and where they come from and, they don't look like their adoptive parents. And so they struggled mm -hmm. with that. And so I just, that's, that was just another confirming to me that open adoption is definitely the way to go. I love it. Um, so through this whole process of the, the adoption process and going through training to become a foster parent, what were you like, what did you learn? Obviously, like we jump into these processes and then there's usually times of like, holy smokes, like what, what do we get ourselves into? And how did that impact your daily life, your marriage? <laughs> there's, that's a big loaded question. Um, but I think that, you know, obviously they, they provide the impact training, um, you know, here in the state of Georgia and every state has some kind of a training for, for fostering. And you either do that through the state or you do that through a private agency. And so, um, and that training is good. Um, but I will have to say fostering, it's really learning by throwing your feet in the fire <laughs> because, mm -hmm. you know, you can, they, you know, they can tell you some scenarios and they can give you, you know, some role playing and, you know, learn the logistics of how you fill out these forms or that type of thing. But until you're in the, the thick of it, um, I think that that's where um, you really learn how to, how to do sure. it. Um, one of the things that I think is so important for foster parents, especially new ones, is to have a mentor or to have someone or a support group or community to go to. And that's one of the things that, you know, I really feel strongly of and that we're working towards 
here um, in Cherokee County, um, where we foster out of, is that it's just so important to have that network because being a foster parent is different than being a parent. Sure. You know, just, just because, you know, you raise three kids doesn't mean at all that being a foster parent, you know what you're going to do because it's not, it has nothing. I mean, it's almost opposite ends of the spectrum. And does Department of Children and Families during these trainings, do they have any way to hook you up with a, a veteran? They do. And that's what we're working even more, putting those processes into place so that, um, that they're directly connected to an organization okay. or to uh, a nonprofit or something like that. So then that way people can, can have that support as they're coming out of, of training before their first placement. Like one of the trainings that I personally have developed and given a couple times is, you know, what I learned my first year that I wish I always knew, you know, cause that first year is just, you know, learning the players and how does it work and what do the court hearings mean and what are all these acronyms and, you know, who do I call for this and what happens when this happens in the middle of the night and you end up in the emergency room, you know, those kind of things that, you know, you learn just by trial, but hopefully having someone to call or talk to helps answer some of those questions. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the kids that you have fostered. So you said your first foster placements were three boys. So we've now been fostering for five years. Okay. And so we are on our 19th placement right now. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And some of them, most of them were reunification. Sure. Um, you know, went to family, you know, grandparents or aunts and uncles or things like that. So, um, you know, which is, is great. And some stayed a week and some stayed 10 months, you know, or, and sure. our current placement's been with us for 18 months. So, you know, I think it just, it's all, it all is the full gamut and being a foster parent is, you know, you're kind of that person in the gap and you're there from, um, when they no longer can be with their, their biological family until a permanent decision or a permanent place for them will be available, whether that's with um, back home with their mom and dad or reunification plan or reunification with another family member or, um, or an adoption. So that's all the different steps. So we're there in between. Okay. So I know that most kids in care are having regular visits with their bio parents. Can you tell me a little bit about that and like your take on the supervised visits and how either taxing or rewarding those can be? Um, well, every, you know, every, most children that come into care do get visits with their birth parents. The, the only time that birth parent, that visits don't happen is if it's unsafe for the child. And so that means that, you know, mom and dad might be having some issues with, um, you know, some controlled substances or there's some criminal activity going on or something like that are really the only reasons that um, visits don't happen between the birth family and the child, um, which birth, that contact is still very important, especially with, re, with reunification as the plan, sure. because you need to keep that bond up. And I think too, and, you know, we've had the gamut from newborn babies, you know, up to, you know, 17 year olds and having that contact with their birth parents is important. Um, especially because most of these kids see their birth parent at their actual, their mom and dad at their actually worst and their lowest part in their life. 
You know, we've had kids that have witnessed the police hauling them off in handcuffs mm. or, you know, them passed out and not being able to be revived or, you know, things like that. And so, um, so they've seen the worst. And so I think part of the visits help these children process their mom and dad doing the work to get them back, you know, and I'm not saying that every visit is, is peachy and rosy and, you know, there's a, still a lot of trauma that happens during visits, you know, because kids, depending on their age and even, even an 18, you know, a 17 year old sometimes has a hard time understanding, well, why can't I just be home with mom and dad? I took care of myself anyway. Right. You know, and so you've got a lot of that going on. Um, but I have also found as a foster mom that the best thing for me to do is to become friends with the birth parents, or at least to have some kind of, I mean, they're not, might not be my best friends that we go out to dinner and coffee with, Sure. but when I treat them friendly and with respect and that they are my foster son's family or my foster daughter's family, then what that does is that gives them confidence in knowing that their child's okay. But it also opens up this dialogue of communication. So if I think something's going wrong or that, that this kid needs some help, I can have a great conversation with mom or dad and um, where maybe defects isn't able to do that. Plus it helps the child when the child sees that, Hey, my foster parents are getting along with my birth parents. Then they're a lot calmer with those transitions. And then the whole thing of leaving a visit and having come back to my house that afternoon is a whole lot easier because they just witnessed me and mom laughing together, Sure, you know? Yeah, and, that's and, beautiful. And especially even at a younger age, before they totally even can comprehend everything, when they see mom and I having a great interaction and then mom straps him in back into his car seat in my car, it, it just helps. It helps the whole situation of, you know, that three-year-old is like, okay, this is okay. Mom knows I'm safe. It's okay. Yeah, and what you're talking about is this perspective. You said earlier that you're, you're the gap. You know, you're the placement that is the gap between reunification or whatever is going to happen between going into kinship care and going into fostering with that perspective of I'm going to be the gap. And you could even use the word just, I'm just going to be the gap really is selfless and takes yourself out of it, which I think is what a lot of, it causes a lot of foster parents angst when they go into it to be X, Y, and Z to this child. And then they have frustrations with, you know, I could raise this child better or have certain judgments about the, their bio parents, or they don't have that open relationship with them. And I feel like this perspective that I've heard you talk about, and I've heard other talk about others talk about where it's like, always be the cheerleader for the bio parents. If you already know that the state's goal is reunification and you go into it thinking you're going to be the gap and you're going to help this family, not just this child, but you're going to help this family. I just think that that's so important and a really important piece for people thinking of possibly becoming a foster parent. That's um, invaluable advice. Definitely. And I, and I also want to talk to the other side of that too, because I think um, not saying, yes, we we're the gap, but our hearts get into it. Like I become mama bear, sure. you know? And I think that, you know, people always say to me, I could never do what you do because I could never give back the kids. Mm -hmm. and I think, 
And I want to say to him, I'm like, yes, you could do what I do. You just have to change your mindset. Sometimes there's many, there's been, you know, a couple kids that have gone back and I, and it hurts my heart because I don't feel like it's the right decision that they've gone home, but I have to trust that this was the best decision made by all the parties making that decision. And, and I still grieve every child that goes home. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm a mess when a kid goes home, <laughs> you know, and um, because when they're in my care, I treat them just like my, my own daughter, like they're, they're my kid. So I, you know, when, when people say I can never do that, I'm like, well, nobody can do that, you know, but it's because you, you're supposed to love that foster kid. Like it will hurt when they go home. Mm-hmm. You know, and so being that gap means you love them that much that, yeah, it does hurt when they go home. But I've also seen a ch- child, children go home and they get to be with their birth parents forever. And we all make bad choices in life. All of us do diff- different degrees. We all have baggage in our past. We all have things that we maybe never worked through, um, you know, that, you know, rears its ugly head in different ways, whether that's substance abuse or poverty or, you know, whatever that might be. Sure. You, know, you were abused and, and that abuse, you never learned the proper way of how to love on someone, you know? So I think loving them through that instead of just play, placing blame. Now, do I get mad? Yeah, I'll be mad. Like, why are you doing this, mom? You know better, you know? And, and I've had those conversations with birth moms before, but it's because... I love them and I care about them and I want their children to go home to them because that's Mm -hmm. what everybody ultimately wants. Nobody wants to take their kids away from them, you know, and, and when a kid goes in, comes into care, it's not, you know, it's a lot goes into that before a kid comes into care and loving that family through that hiccup, through that mistake, you know, and I always tell a kid, you know, your mom and dad have things they have to work on. You know, we all do. Yeah. And, and And it's just different degrees. And so, so I think part of that is being that gap, but also loving them like they're your own. Yeah. And I think that, and yeah, it's going to hurt when they leave, but wow, what a difference you made in that kid. And, you know, they said it's only, it only takes six months for children to have a different mindset, mm. you know? And so if you look at, okay, this kid's been with us for six months or over six months, that kid's going home with a different mindset. So no matter what kind of life they're going to have, and yeah, there's different, you know, you want to say, I could give them a better life. Well, you don't know that, you yeah. know? Um, and and maybe maybe they need to be raised a certain way because their future is going to be something different and great, sure. you know? Like, no idea what that is. Right. But you helps with that mindset of giving them that different different view and different way of processing so that when they do grow grow up, they're always going to remember there's a different way to love. There's a different way to have a family. Mm-hmm. There's a different, you know, education is important. Um, you know, maybe those are things that they're not going to have with their birth families, but there's other things they're going to learn being in that family that they wouldn't learn it being in your family. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's value from every every walk of life, and there's plenty of people that have had completely different, you know, upbringings than we have had, and they are more successful than us. So, you know, so for us, it's really not our call to make those judgments. I like that you may, you know, you describe that as like, well, it's a gap. 
because we're trying to get them back with their birth parents, but we're still loving fully and we're still grieving every child. And, and that's okay. And there is times where, um, where they're, they're not able to be reunified with mom and dad. And, and those, those times are when foster parents can step up and adopt those children. And that's so beautiful you know, when, when that happens because they've made that bond with them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and, and when that gets to happen, that that's, it's beautiful because that foster parent who stepped in during that gap time also then says, you know what, I want to be your forever family, mm. you know, and, and some foster parents want that. And some foster parents don't, you know, Peter and I have always gone into it as, you know, we're that gap. Mm -hmm. um, if if it comes up to that there's that there's a child that that needs our forever us to be a forever home then we're there for them sure um but in the process of the last 19 <laughs> we've been the gap and um so we'll see what what god brings from there yeah i love that and i i like the the kind of permission to set your own intention people feel like they need to be a certain type of foster parent. And it's okay if you are called to just be the gap. Um, it's okay if you're called to just adopt, you know, only see kids that are up for adoption. Uh, there's a lot of people that feel like they, they might judge themselves one way or the other uh, because that they've set a boundary for themselves and it's fine. We need everyone. Everybody has a place in this story. And um, some, having some placement with boundaries is better than having nobody step up. Totally. And I think too, I think, I think boundaries are the healthy thing because if you go in to say, I'm going to foster and I'm going to save all these kids, um, you go into it with a mentality of like, I'm going to adopt, you know, we're going to, we're going to save them. And you know, we're, we offer that better life. Then you're going to be so disappointed and you're going to be so heartbroken because the system is broken and 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 it's not what it's not where it should be by any means um it's got a lot of work to be done to it but um but going into it where we're going to adopt and we're going to save these kids and that type of thing you need to go into it saying we're we're adopt only family mm -hmm. you know and not a foster to adopt or not a you know because even a foster to adopt you got to be willing to know that there is a high, high chance that those kids are going home. Sure. You know, and, and in, you know, in States, and I, I also have found too doing this, um, that different parts of the country handle it different ways. You know, some parts of the country are very um, child focused and there's not as many reunifications and some part of the parts of the country are very parent focused and there is a lot of reunifications. Mm -hmm. So you've got to, you've, you've got to know where you live, you know, and what that state is to know, um, you know, this is what you're signing up for, you know? And I think sometimes when you hear foster parents that are so heartbroken, it's because they're getting into a foster to adopt. And so they're taking kids in, but then it gets bad for them because they really only see adoption as the best option for this child. Right. No, I mean, there, there's definitely in the 19 kids, there's a couple kids that I thought we would adopt. And I thought that, 
you know, we're going to stay with us forever. And, and I thought we were the better choice, you know, sure. but, but that wasn't what the better choice was. The better choice was reunification and the better choice was a grandparent. And those are, you have to be in a place that you're able to accept that, you know, otherwise you need to set a boundary and say, no, we can't accept that. Sure. You know? sure. And so it definitely takes to be a foster parent. I think it also takes some time to reflect within of what can we do and what can't we do. Yeah. I love that. And being okay with whatever the decision is. Because there's so much need that just being a, an adopt only family is so needed. Just like just being a, a family in the gap is so needed. Like there's so much need in the foster care community. Um, even if it's like, you know, when people say to me, I can't do what you do because I could never give that child back. And I'm like, but no, but you could support me. You could support another foster family. You could be the break for them. You could provide meals for them. You could services. There's so much need to support our foster community um, that everybody can be involved <laughs> in, in supporting foster kids. I agree. I agree. And I know some people will say like, well, it seems really selfish, but I only want a girl that's two years old or under. And it's like, those exist. Those There's exist. girls that are two year old and younger and they need homes. So, exactly. and that's okay. That's okay. Okay. You know, and yeah. take the guilt out of it and be, that's okay. Yeah. So when did you first learn about trauma and therapeutic parenting? <laughs> our very first placement. <laughs> um, our very, very first placement was um, some boys who have, who were, were been through the thick of it, you know, and, and when kids come into care, nobody really knows their story, you know, um, when they first walk in the door and, and at, when they're in the defects office for the first, you know, hour, six hours, even, you know, they're scared, they're quiet, they're taint, you know, like they, they're not their true selves because that's just, they're, they're, they don't know what to do, you know? And even, even kids that lash out that first hour or two that they're sitting in a defects office, that's not their true self either. You know, they could actually be a very sweet, kind, quiet child. You know, they're just like, they didn't know what to do with themselves. So they started screaming bloody murder for an hour. You right. know? Like, so, so that, that first, you know, I always call it the honeymoon, you know, or that, that period of time when you're trying to get to really know somebody, um, when you're first living together or, you know, your brand new roommate kind of situation where the first month or two, seems to go okay because you're still trying to figure each other out. Um, and then when, when kids start learning like, okay, I can trust you, Sure. you know? And, and um, I saw this great quote just the other day and I wish I could quote it, quote it, but it was something about like, you know, when a foster kid starts rebelling or starts acting out or starts what, you know, it's not because they want to leave your home. It's because they finally start trusting. Yeah. You know, and when a foster parent thinks everything's going great and all of a sudden the kid's like freaking out and you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't going to work or this kid doesn't belong here. They're really saying to you, no, I love you and I'm trusting you. Yeah. And, and, and that's probably the first, so probably about two months into our first placement. Well, no, our, ours started a lot sooner. Ours was within the first week we got to see what trauma really was. And within probably the first two weeks of our first placement, we all realize that these children had been through a lot more. Did your 
training initially talk to you about trauma, the impacts it has, behaviors you might see because of trauma, and then how to therapeutically intervene? Uh, I, our training talked about trauma. I don't know if it, I'm sure it gave some, a few examples of what to do. Um, but you know, when you're doing your training, you don't, that stuff's you're not processing. Sure. <laughs> you know, or you're like, oh, okay, these kids are going to come in with trauma. And that's when I even say parents who, who have said, well, I've raised three kids and they're all, you know, adults now I can foster. I've raised kids. I know how it goes. Sure. <laughs> you have no idea, yeah. you know, because unless you've raised a kid from that's had trauma, you don't truly understand trauma in a child. Right. You know, it, it is completely different than, than what you can handle. You know, a trauma that happens to an adult, um, adult has functioning, adult has words, adult has, knows how to seek help, adult knows how to take care of themselves, you know, to make that happen. Where a child, it doesn't really matter what their age, they don't understand what's going on. Um, most of them can't understand what, why their brain is processing this way, why they're snapping, why they're not snapping, um, why they're not talking anymore. Um, they don't really even understand what they witnessed or what they experienced. And, and so all of that is so deep and it just comes out in many, many different forms. Mm. So were you able to access resources on trauma and how to use therapeutic approaches rather than, you know, like they say, you're not punitive or you don't do time out, but you do time in. Did you learn about those or did you access resources where you could find? So how do I deal with this in, in the right way? Yeah. Well, a lot of it spent time on the computer. Like, <laughs> what is this? What do you do? You know, um, because a lot of it comes after the fact, you know, and, right. and now you have a kid that's, that's punching holes in the walls and urinating in your trash can. And what do you do with this? Right. You know, and, and, and learning things like time in, you mm -hmm. know, that was a whole new concept. You don't, we never did time in before. No. I never knew anyone that I didn't even know what time in was. Right. And well, starting to learn about different things and the power to connect and care and purpose and, you know, and, and learning about these great things that are out there um, to help you and things like stable moments. You know, I just, I Googled and that's how I even found stable moments was, um, like, you know, these kids need stuff. They need therapeutic outlets. They need ways of coping. Um, we, you know, they did bring in a behavioral aid that helped us with some things, but then finding a play therapist, not just a therapist, but a play therapist to give them better ways of coping through their trauma and then giving them tools and us tools to help our family, um, you know, help them. That's great. That's great that you were offered those resources and that you guys utilize them. Definitely. Because I know, I know a lot of a family, I started my career as a post-adoption case manager. And part of the struggle was as soon as they became adoptive parents, those services didn't continue. And I don't know that they were completely aware that they were on their own now. And it's like, this is going to be a lifelong, you know, healing journey. Um, so talk about isolation. And it is nice to know, at least while they're in foster care, that, that you're able to take those resources as needed. And, and, the, and you know, different states do different things, you know, um, on how they offer adoption assistance. But I think that's something that um, as foster parents, if you're going to 
if, if you're getting to the process where, okay, this is now going to transfer from reunification to an adoption, is to really educate yourself on the adoption assistance that your state offers. Yeah. Uh, because you need all of those things in place and you need all of the parties to agree before that adoption is finalized so that you can have those services after the child is adopted. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, you're absolutely right. And so many parents had no clue that they had these rights or that they could advocate for some things. They could advocate for a diagnosis, which would give them an adoption stipend till the kid was 18. And I met with so many parents that hadn't gotten those things into their adoption agreement. Um, thankfully, I was actually able to write quite a few proposals back to the state to have them look into that and change those, do an, an amendment. Um, because we know that some things actually don't even show up. You know, you might get a three-year-old that you think, oh, everything's fine, we don't need anything, and, and here we go, seven, eight, nine, you're like, this is from trauma, and we should have done something. So even if you've signed the dotted line, there are, in some states, resources where you can go back if you have the right language to use and, and you have, um, post-adoption services where you can go back and get some of those supports. But yeah, it's not readily available. You talk to a lot of case managers and they say like, I don't think we have funds for that. And I'll uncover that there is funds for that. The turnover rate with case managers and keeping up with, with where the funds are or what was funded this year, it's just, it's a lot. You really almost have to become your own investigator. As a foster parent, you have to. And I think that that's, you know, those are things to educate, you know, foster parents in because that that adoption assistance for every state and and most states will do a deferred adoption assistance on every case. But you as a foster parent have to request that. Mm. And and so so most states even have that clause in every adoption through foster care. Um, but you have to you have to request that. And, and yes, you can go back sometimes and amend that. It's just harder. Um, yep. But really educating the foster community um, that, hey, this adoption assistance is out there. And if, if you are ever in the case where that is coming to, you know, oh, hey, we're looking at adoption, then, then to do your research and know what is a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. So off the top of your head, because I know people will listen and think, okay, what are... What are the best times? What are the worst times? So what have been some of your big, biggest obstacles over the 19? And then what have been some of your biggest wins? Wow. <laughs> um, I could probably write a book. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm positive. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I'm going to start with the wins because the, it's just to see a kid who went from you know, complete breakdown to, you know, every day losing it completely. I mean, and we're talking an eight-year-old losing it to the point of worse than a two-year-old tantrum you're ever going to see um, over, over nothing um, to find out that that was because of, of, you know, being shut in a room his whole life, you know, like, but to, to see him go from, from that state, that that horrible state that you're just like, okay, is this really like, is this a movie, you know? And, and to go from that state to, to see that transformation in that child and to see them 
be who they truly are mm. and and loving and smart and and to see them almost lose it and then catch themselves mm. and it's like the best like you just your heart melts and you're just like wow i got to witness that you know i got to be there and walk that journey with him now in the thick of all that garbage and those days when i'm like how can we do this we can't do this you know to that to that other point is is huge so so it's almost like everything that's the worst that's ever could happen in my home has turned out to be the most beautiful mm. and and you have that great relationship with that with that birth mom that you get little tidbits or you get pictures now and then or you get hey we're you know so and so's doing this and so and so's doing that and you know those are like wow i had an opportunity to be part of that yeah you know i got to be part of that redemption of that you know and that's that's when you go this was worth this was worth it this was completely worth it and even the ones that go back and you're just like this is not okay there's nothing okay with this you know to know that that i had you know that we had a part in that mm -hmm. you know we had a part in loving that human being you know and that's what we're all supposed to be doing is just is loving each other no matter what the circumstances or the choices that people make and um you know there's there's great things when you know a child who doesn't speak comes in your home doesn't speak doesn't say a word and five days later comes up to you and says good morning Aww. you know and you're just like <gasps> you know and, and it's it's nothing grand that makes it the best um it's just those little precious moments that you'll never forget a day in your life i love it, it. it's so worthwhile i absolutely love it and and once again advocating for the 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 bio parent relationship i love that you just said once you've made those great relationships once the child goes home if you have done a good job at making them feel included in this process they usually will include you after the child has returned home and how rewarding is that that you're a person that you know just helped while they were down and probably taught them a lot and gave their child a new mindset and was just there like we need to be there as a community and and having little reminders of that and seeing kids grow is pretty darn cool it, it really truly is and i'm, I'm not because <clears throat> i know there's definitely times where i am so frustrated and so upset at you know our birth parents for some choices that they make and you see them going down the wrong path again you know or you see them just making bad decisions or not showing up. And, you know, one of the things I learned, and it's kind of that, you know, thing of, you know, that divorced parent, you never say anything bad about the other parent. The same goes with this, you know, I never ever in front of those foster kids ever say anything negative about their parents, you know? Um, and I don't ever try to show it either, you know, when there's no visit or something happens, it's always like, I'm so sorry, mommy was just busy today and, or something happened, but mommy will see you next week. Or, you know, just really trying to be, be positive, you know, and, and when you have the older teenagers being real with them, you know what, I don't know what happened, you know, and, and the other teenager going, they don't care. And I'm like, I don't think they don't care. I think they made a bad choice today. And, and that teen being like, oh, 
okay you know and and even just like for them to even click that i still didn't go to that negative even though the teen was i don't go to that negative even though i want to take that parent out back and give them a piece of my mind <laughs> you know and um you know and, and i have called birth parents but i've built that relationship before i call and give them a hard time mm -hmm. or say hey why did you do that so-and-so was so disappointed do you know they cried for three hours because you didn't show up and i think because you've had credibility with them they're more open to hear that from you because they're not getting that from their case manager their case manager sure. also like check you didn't show up another time right you know and and that's not the role right. of the casa worker there is really no role um for the for the birth parents right to get someone to walk alongside them and support yeah, and coming at it like, you know, the level of shame I can imagine that goes along with having your kids taken away from you. And what is your coping mechanism? Probably something that got your kids taken away from you. So it's a difficult time not to engage in what you know to give you comfort. And do I think that it's the foster parent's job to be the, you know, the bio parent's caseworker? No, but what a beautiful perspective to, to be able to say like, how can we make this work? And I know that this is a difficult time for you. It goes far if you can build that relationship and you feel like you can tell them this affects your child. And I really like how you said, especially with the older kids, when they said she just doesn't care. And you can say, no, I think she cares. She just made a bad choice. And it really takes the child out of it, out of the choices. The choices she makes doesn't mean or doesn't say anything about you as a person or your value. I think that's huge. And kids want to be talked to like real. Mm -hmm. They've they been in real. And they know lies. So they're yeah. not real. I mean, and, and you know, it's, it's weird because my daughter's eight, right? <laughs> and our first placement, we had an eight-year-old. And I remember talking to him. And I think to myself, now I think, gosh, I don't know if I would talk to Olivia the same way. But Olivia's experiences and her first eight years are completely different than this young man's experiences were for his first eight years. You know, with him, I was very real. I was very straightforward. We didn't lie, but we always talked positively, but we never lied. You know, we never hid. Where now, I don't know if I would, you know what I mean? Like, cause our kids grew up differently. And I think that always just being real, real and truthful with them, um, because their life experiences, even as an eight-year-old, are what maybe our children's life experiences would be not till they're out of high school. Right, right. You know, and you or never. Or never. Yes. Yeah, so we pray never right. <laughs> in some some instances. But but even to totally like wrap your head around it. Like I don't think I don't think my daughter could ever wrap her head around being locked in a um being locked in a crawl space all day long with no lights right you know I, I don't think she could you know or not get lunch you know right. i don't think she could and i pray she never does have to wrap right. around that yeah and i think that it's okay to use your judgment and talk to each kid on a one on individual basis you know knowing what you do know about their history and judging what they can handle so t tell me a little bit about yeah. any hesitations or 
just your general experience about introducing these kids to Olivia. Because this is a concern that a lot of parents have where they already have children that are in their home that they feel like have to be their first priority, whether it be their biological children or their previously adopted children. So how did you navigate? You know, overall, it has been the absolute best thing we could have ever given Olivia is to be a foster sister. And I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. My daughter at eight years old has more compassion and understanding than most adults. Mm -hmm. She, um, she loves this more than, than my husband and I do, <laughs> you know, if we go too long without a kid in our house, she's like, mommy, when's the next baby coming? Mommy, when's the next kid coming? Mommy, you know, we gotta have, you know, and, and so my fears for her have, have like literally been put to rest because of our experiences, you know, and has she seen bad? Yeah, she has she's, she's seen it. And I, I hate to, you know, in meaning that she's seen misbehavior. Um, she's seen kids that just don't know what to do with themselves. Um, but we do a lot of talking and I think, um, that's so important. Um, maybe at eight, she does have a bigger understanding of the world than, than other kids at eight, because she knows that some kids go through things, you know, that are pretty horrible. Um, but I will say that every time a placement leaves, we always sit down with Olivia and have a really long talk. Mm. So, you know, let's talk about this. What, how do you feel about having another kid in the house? How do you feel about sharing your toys longer? How do you feel, you know, what worked, what didn't work for you, you know, and, and depending, like we've gone from she's age two to now age eight, you know, so so going in that different, at different levels, she's had different things. Well, I don't want them playing with my toys you know, was, was one of them when, when one of, you know, when a group of kids left. And so we took her most precious toy stayed in her room and then her room becomes off limits, mm -hmm. you know, so doing things that help her cope, but majority of the time it's Peter and I that have the issues, not her, right. <laughs> you know, because she's young and just like everything else, our kids naturally love our yep. kids naturally don't judge. Our, my daughter loves these kids' parents better than I ever could. Sure. She asks about every birth mom all the time, all the time. And, you know, so-and-so should say, so how's, how's your mom today? Or how was your visit? And, oh, and she'll make cards for birth moms of the kids. And she, you know, and it, it even gets to a point sometimes too where, in fact, we've had such a good relationship with some of our birth parents that, when they buy their children a gift, they also have bought Olivia something, Aww. you know? And it's like, how beautiful is that, that they included that part of our family. And so now has Olivia been exposed to some things? Yes. And, and the fear of, of that for parents is really real. We um, have learned to take some precautions. You know, we, um, she has a room that has no other connection to another, you know, another bedroom or bathroom. She has her own bathroom, um, you know, cause we had all the same fears, you know, that, that parents have one child was room, you know, removed from our home because we were afraid something might happen, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so we very lovingly found the best fit for that person. 
and you know and, and it was a win-win all the way around um because we just want you know we do want olivia to be protected and not cause her harm or trauma but overall out of 19 kids one of them we had a concern with you know i right, mean right and it, and it wasn't nothing ever happened it was just a concern and and we had such a good relationship with defects um and and if whether you're with defects or directly with an agency they know what your family dynamics are right i mean there's kids that come into care that they're desperate but they know oh no the hartmans have a three-year-old or a four-year-old or whatever that that kid's not going to be a good fit for that family right you know and the same with an agency they're looking out for you because the last thing defects child protective services wants to do is hurt harm another child right you know right and or it, lose another foster parent because they right yeah because they put a wrong the wrong dynamics together right you now and, and if the wrong dynamics do get together they totally nobody judges nobody second guesses everybody understands to find the right fit for that child and for your family and so we've had great experiences with that so i know that you have some thoughts on this and i'm going to be asking everybody that comes on on the podcast this question but what are your ideas on how we end this foster care crisis which is, is just getting worse at this point. It is. And I think, um, you know, probably the big thing before you can even end it is you've got to get the right people at the table. Mm. Um, people are making decisions and making laws for foster and adoption, especially um, adopting through foster care. But they're making laws um, that have never adopted, have never fostered, um, have never worked within the system. And the people who have the most influence in that might be um, a foster, uh, an adoption, you know, or not foster, um, might be the like the director of a county or the director of a state for child and protective services. When was the last time they were doing a, they did a home visit? When was the last time they sat with foster parents that um, are, are upset because this child's not receiving the services that they need? Um, and until a state and even our government, you know, the national government get the right people at the table, I really don't think we're going to see an end to this crisis. Mm. And, and it's not about who has the most money and, and what political party you belong to and who gives the most donations on which kind of bills and, and laws we're writing. It's about getting the right people at the table and the right people at the table are the people at the ground level. They're the foster parents. They're the case managers that have 30 to 40 cases workload. You know, they're the, the, the supervisors. They're the CASA workers, um, not the CASA supervisors. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, and I think that's, you get all those people at the right table um, and you truly listen to them, um, then you're gonna see real change happen until the court system starts giving a voice to foster parents, mm. I don't think change is gonna happen. Um, foster parents have the most knowledge out of anybody, especially if they have a relationship with their birth parents, mm -hmm. especially. Foster parents know the most. They know exactly what that kid needs, or at least what's going on, and say, we need services, 
They sure. might not know exactly what services or exactly what diagnosis, but they know something's going on. Mm -hmm. And they know this kid needs stuff. If they have a good relationship with the birth parents, let me tell you, uh, at firsthand knowledge, those birth parents tell you everything, <laughs> everything. You know the whole story, more story than you ever care to know. Sure. They will, because you have a relationship yeah. and they've trusted. They trust you. And so they tell you everything. So you realize, oh, oh, okay, we need to do some family therapy or this, this person needs family therapy on their own because of what they went through as a child. Right. That no one at DFACS has a clue of. Right. You know, and, or, um, you know, and I mean, I know foster parents that, and, and even myself have advocated that it's time for a child to go home because you know that that birth mom's done the work, you know, or you know the birth mom's at a place, you know the kids are at a place even. So, because sometimes even defects doesn't, oh, really, it's time to go home? And you're like, and it's not, it's not that defects isn't doing their job, you know, Department of Children and Family sure. Services. And I say defects because here in Georgia, that's what it's called, but sure. every other states, you know, use different things. But um, it's that we have, they have too much on their plate. And we're asking people, to make decisions for kids and to make things happen for children that are in their early 20s that have hardly any experience. And you're asking them not to make decisions about two or three cases. And mind you, each case could be, you know, one to five kids. Right. So we're not talking, you know, just three kids. We could be talking about 15 kids, <laughs> you know. But right now, at least in the state of Georgia, we have case managers with 30, 35 cases. But you're talking people with six months experience have that kind of task. You're talking about failure. Right. All the way around. Right. And it's not, nobody gets into to working for the Department of Children and Family Services because it pays a lot of money. Right. People get, get into social work and fostering be, you know, in, in the foster care system because of their heart and because of their compassion and because of how they're made. Um, so when you set people up for failure, you're setting them up for failure when you give them those kind of cases. I don't think any foster worker should have more than 12 cases, period. Mm. Knowing what has to happen and for it to really, really happen efficiently for the kids um, of what the kids need, of what the birth parents need, about how to make reunification happen. 12 to 15 cases is the max of what a, uh, what a human being can handle. And, and we're, all, we're off the charts. We are more than doubled. And, and I don't think that's just a Georgia problem. I think that's a, the countrywide problem. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that takes money. And when states cut budgets, foster care seems to be one of the first things they cut. Mm -hmm. And that should always be the last thing you cut. Mm -hmm. In fact, you should always just keep giving them money, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but I also think too is, so you got to get the right people at the table to really learn what the right, right thing is to do for these kids and for these families. But then you also have to look at the root problems, you know, like what is the problem? Why, why did Georgia go from having 4,000 kids in care to 14,000 kids in care in four years? something happened right like what what happened in georgia well i've i've even heard that the argument about georgia's numbers were actually 
that it was a good thing because they invested more money in the in caseworkers, therefore less kids were falling through the cracks, more kids were coming into care that actually should be in care. So I, I know I, those the numbers that you gave seem staggering, uh, staggering increase, and and I know there's a lot of a lot of reasons for why the foster care crisis is going up, but numbers in care don't always mean that that there's more kids coming into care. It might mean that we're actually addressing some of the issues and kids that should be coming into care are coming into care. But and that's and that's great. I mean, because that, that is the other thing too, you know, okay, well, there's 14,000 kids that need attention. But the problem is, is that because now there's 14,000 kids, our system's not set up to handle 14,000 kids. You don't have foster homes for 14,000 kids. Now we have, you know, nine and 10 year olds in group homes, which never should be. I don't think any kid should ever be in a group home, much less a nine and 10 year old. Sure. You've got, you know, so you don't have those resources. You don't have the case manager resources to handle those 14,000 kids. And so then what happens is then states start making decisions and start making laws of returning kids too early, mm -hmm. of not following even, or and then the, then, you know, then the court system gets overloaded and then we're not making finalization choices for kids. You know, I mean, there's, there's timelines for a reason. Kids aren't, kids are supposed to have a permanent plan within 18 months. It's three, four, five years sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, before they're having permanent plans. And that's that it's because the so so more money needs to be invested to handle that when you get to that level. The last thing I want to see is us not take kids into care because we don't have the funds to handle it, you know, that type of thing. And so something has to be done to help with that. Um, but I think, too, is you've got to get the right people at the table to be talking about these things and not career politicians who go, oh yeah, let's do something for foster care or even bring it up, you know, um, or don't even ever bring it up. You know? Right. Well, and it's an investment. You, you, you do this right and you start ending the cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we say it's going to cost money now and that's too much money, but if we can get a kid with a, a permanence plan quickly, and we can do right by that child and they're able to have a nurturing environment or the parents are able to get the support they need, then that kid's a lot less likely to have their own kids go into care or be homeless or be on state subsidies. So this not being a priority kind of baffles me. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because of, because of the economic burden alone. Yeah. And it seems like that's their excuse is we just don't have the money. And it's um, when 70% of kids that have been in foster care end up incarcerated, that alone should be staggering to all of us. Alone should just yeah. want to make all of us like scream out loud as fast, you know, as loud as we can, you know, um, because that was not the kid's choice <laughs> to come into care. But it was because that when they were brought into care, it wasn't handled correctly. We either sent them home too early, we didn't give their parents support that they needed, or we didn't find a permanency plan for that child that was healthy. Right. And when I advocate for birth parents, I say all the time, like, guys, these are not, these are not adults, you know, 
they were just kids that turned 18. Like nothing miraculous happened at 18 that now they should be responsible and all this. Like they have all the trauma that they had. They might have been in foster care too. And we're completely open and pour our hearts into kids in care. No, you know, no child should be an orphan. No child should be in foster care. But why our perception changes so much because they've turned 18 and now they should, you know, be responsible and know how to make good choices and know how to parent their own kids. It's just, it's not feasible. They need as much support as the kids. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, I totally, I, I totally feel you on that one. And it is these, these typically the kids coming into care have parents that need, need support and they probably have needed support for a real long time. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, and then that's a society issue. And then that becomes a political issue because then it's, you know, government subsidies and, you know, how much do we hand, give handouts and how do we give handouts? You know what I mean? And like, and, and where does, where does the, the nonprofit sector step into, you know? Well, yeah, that's, that's my thing is I'm like, I am more about community level work because I don't know if I have the patience, (laughs) right. I don't know if I have the patience to wait around to, you know, elect officials that are going to listen to the right people at the table. So one thing I feel like we can do now is like, you know, your neighbor can mentor a kid. You, you can bring lasagna to a foster parent. You as a foster parent can try to help understand your bio parent. I mean, there are things we can do that are making a difference in, as you see, individual lives, which that's a huge deal. I mean, if you change the trajectory for one kid, it's a huge deal. That's his kids and the kids after that. So, um, so I, I always go back to this, like, what can we do now? And can we take some of our power back? Because, because we're going to need to. And honestly, I mean, this is my belief, but I, it's our problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's our it community our problem. problem. It, it is. And it's, it's every, it's, it's everyone's problem. <laughs> you know, yes. it's, it's our society and it's our, you know, we take control of it. I totally agree. You know, and I think, I think private, the private nonprofits can have such a bigger voice at the table once again, Mm -hmm. you know, and can do so much more. Um, There, there has to be processes in place to allow them to do that too. Yeah. And I think some of it is just, you know, where, where's the table, where do I come to it? And, And I do hope even by something as simple as this podcast, like bringing people together to just, your voice is value, valuable, your opinion matters. I certainly don't have all the answers, and I don't know no. what it's like to be a police officer responding to a call. I don't know what it's like to be a judge sitting in that situation. I have not been a foster parent. So let's, you know, let's start bringing some of these voices together and and just empower people to know that nobody should feel like their voice or opinion in this matter doesn't doesn't matter because because they have a place and like you said the people that are in charge certain are, are way more removed from the situation than than the people on the ground level so I I love that I love and, that you know, and, and too I think it too is that 
mutual respect in that team approach. You know, it's not, it's not the case manager against the foster parent. It's not the, you know, birth parents against the foster parent. It's not, you know, the judge against defects, you know, against the case managers and the children department services. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's when we come together as a team is when you really see things happen and you see success happen, you know? And I think when, when you get past all of that and you can do that, it happens. How we get there is tough because as a foster parent, I can tell you I'm the first one and I've kind of developed a reputation within my county. Oh, it's Nicole, <laughs> you know, because I'm not gonna just, I fight for my kids tooth and bear. Like I am, I am, a, I am mama bear to a T. I fight for them constantly. And I'm gonna call people on the carpet if you're not doing your job. And it's not that I don't think you're a good person. It's this kid deserves me to fight. And I so understand you mm. have 30 other cases, but right now this is the case I care about because this is what, this is the one in right. my home. This is the one I'm the mom to. This is the one I'm going to make it work, you know? And, and I also think when a birth parent sees you're like that and that you fight for those kids, like that it also gives them i've seen more give them more i have seen them give me more respect but i've and and understanding as well and i've also seen when you develop that relationship with a birth parent they're apt to more have more understanding and be less demanding on my time does that make sense like like that makes sense and like you're you're leading by example you're showing them how you do yeah, advocate. And, and all of my kids, like one of my goals too, is because a lot of times our system is so difficult. Let's just be honest. Anything you get from the system, whether that's the court system or the educational system or the services system or whatever, it's hard. It's not easy. There's tons of paperwork. There's tons of processes. Um, a lot of times it's ridiculous process. I mean, just to get yourself on WIC and get milk for your or formula for your baby the process is ridiculous. And, and so you, you think mm -hmm. about, you have a mom who um, maybe has had education, maybe hasn't, who is going through her own stuff, you know, maybe has had addiction problems, maybe hasn't, but that causes, it's harder to make things happen. You've got a mom who um, maybe is dealing with an abusive uh, relationship, but has to make things, you know, wants trying to provide the best for their kids, or you're dealing with a homeless mom that doesn't have an address to give, how do they get on WIC? You know, I mean, for me, we're, you know, to put a child on WIC, it's like a six step process. Six times you have to drive there. I mean, and then that's just one example. So even to provide these services for our families to be successful is not a, isn't, is hard. And, and I, I get that they want processes in place so people aren't abusing things or I don't know, maybe that's the reason it's there. I'm not quite quite sure, but you know, but to help that birth mom get those processes in place so that when that child goes home, those processes are already there. That child already has WIC, that child already has an IEP in school, that child already is enrolled in a, in a CAPS program that can be can continued once that child goes home. Or, or in a, in a daycare center that, that will continue to work with that 
birth mom, you know, like whatever that might be, those little things, like when I know a kid is definitely on their way home, my goal is to get them as many things lined up as I possibly can, you know, to make that successful, it be successful at home. Now I can't make mom call to schedule those appointments that you made or to get the child there, but to get them to that place makes it so much easier for everyone. So I know that um, you have All Embrace is your nonprofit, right? Yes. And I want to make sure that you promote this because so often people are led to foster an adoption because of infertility issues or because of loss, um, like your story. So I would like anyone who finds the need for your service to be able to look you up and, and get connected. So tell us a little bit about All Embrace and how people can find you. So it's allembrace.com. Um, we um, are on the internet. <laughs> you know, we have a website and a, and a Facebook page and um, Instagram, you know, all those kind of social media outlets. Um, we are based here in Georgia and um, we do have some chapters around the country. Um, and, uh, but we, we have serviced families all the way from Australia, all the way around. <laughs> um, and so we provide support groups for, for families. Um, we provide um, services, um, anything that has to do with the loss of, an, of, of a baby, pretty much from conception to birth. Um, and so whether that's services in, in burial and finding resting places to just support, to what to do when you're told you're gonna miscarry this child, um, you know, all those really, really hard subjects that nobody wants to talk about mm. that, um, literally sucks the life out of the room. Yeah. Well, it sounds like an amazing resource. Yeah. And I think just even knowing it's out there. Absolutely. All right. This has been such an amazing call. Thank you so much, Nicole. You are truly an inspiration and you just keep doing your thing and fostering those kids and, and shedding the light and using your voice and coming to that table. Definitely. Thank you for all that you're doing. And your baby is so precious. Thank you. So if you're ever back in Georgia, let me know. Cause we'd love to say hi or get a cup of coffee or something. I will for sure. All right. Okay. Take care. Right. Bye. Oh my gosh, you guys, that was such a rich conversation. I know we went so long, but you know, while I was editing, there was just so many good things. I couldn't edit them out. So thank you for hanging out with us. I hope that this was inspirational to you and helped you understand how maybe you can love on birth parents a little bit more. If there's somebody that you know that could use this podcast, please go ahead and share it with them. You can follow us on social. I hope you'll join us next week when we talk to an Atlanta child welfare judge. See you there.